back to Conversations for the Good. Good morning, Dr. Jane. I've missed you. Good morning, Anna. It's good to be back. Good to be with it, you. Yes, it certainly is, Dr. Jane. Well, we've talked about changes we initiate and change outside of our control. And Dr. Jane, it occurred to me that changes in relationships seem to be the most impactful, right? So it can turn life upside down and inside out. What does it mean to have a healthy relationship? You know, what are the ingredients and what do we have control over? You know, well, Anna, you know, we probably need to start with what exactly is a relationship. You know, the simplest definition is that a relationship is the way that two or more concepts, objects, ideas, or or people are connected. And some think that even after there is a disconnection or a disillusionment of a relationship, there continues to be connections to the reasons for that disconnection. So how about that? It's kind of like you're always in it. (laughs) Yes. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, it really is. And the definition covers just about everything. So most things in our world are connected to something or someone else. You know, pretty much everything is. Well, that's right. You know, and for our purposes, you know, we'll focus on social relationships, you know, because we we are as humans, you know, wired for social relationships. It's part of the survival mechanism that kept our primitive ancestors alive in dangerous and and unpredictable times, you know, that they lived in. So we also need to take into consideration that who or what we connect to in current times is often determined by the relationship we had to our families or have to our families, you know, our values, our beliefs, our conditioning, our backstory, you know, that that's what really creates the worldview. It never ceases to amaze me how most of our conversations, you know, maybe all of them have pointed to the elements of the backstory as a fundamental and the decision and the choices that we make and how we live our lives. True. True. You know, a couple of things that come up for me as we explore relationships and how we cope. You know, the first thing is that we're all evolving. We're all changing. Remember, we talked about the impermanence of all things. So change is really, <laughs> when, we, when we look at it that way, it's really the only certainty. You know, and sometimes we don't realize it as it's happening, yet, yet we are. And then one day we realize that, hey, gosh, this really doesn't work for me anymore. Or, gosh, this part of my, my life or my work or my behavior doesn't fit with who I want to be. You know, or maybe this happens to someone we're friends with. Are, are with our significant other, and we feel ambushed by the change, you know, really didn't see it coming, you know, or, or maybe we didn't want to see it, you know, and we may feel hurt or abandoned by the other person. So, you know, on a life experiences and challenges continue to shape and mold us throughout our entire lifetime. You know, we're not meant to be static beings. We're meant to grow. And as we change, it affects all of our relationships because everything is interconnected. So we're always adjusting and adapting and accommodating, connecting, disconnecting, always. So everything in life is relational, right? And we choose and hold these relationships according to our values, beliefs, and conditioning. And everything is in a constant change, evolving, shifting here today, not necessarily here tomorrow. Now let's, you know, Dr. Jane, can we just zoom into the social aspects of the relationships? 
Sure. You know, no matter the relationship, whether it's with a partner, a friend, a family member, a pet, a coworker, you know, if it's healthy, it will include several ingredients, self-awareness, trust, respect, compassion, and open, honest communication. Okay, this sounds fundamental. Let's look more closely at them. Okay. You know, all healthy relationships start at home with us, us individually. And when I say that, I mean the best version of us. You know, if we're not healthy, it's not possible to have healthy relationships. If we're not able to discern what's happening and why, it's almost impossible to shift out of unhealthy connections and unhealthy reactivity. So healthy relationships start with present moment awareness, that self-awareness, which is being able and, and willing to turn toward ourselves and be fully responsible for the choices we're making. Yes, even that negative reactivity, you know, I mean, especially the unhealthy reactivities. You know, we're talking about conscious choices here, you know, not always engaging in the old knee-jerk reactions of people-pleasing and accommodating. So it starts with us being aware of and owning the healthiness or unhealthiness and how it extends into our connections with others. Yeah. So let's continue to lay the groundwork for exploring our relationships by saying more about self-awareness. So if you recall, we often refer to the emotional bundle of our everyday experiences. And the emotional bundle includes our thoughts, our feelings, our body sensations, our impulses. And, and it's really about how these are interconnected and always in a dynamic process. You know, we can't always predict what's going to come up for us and how we're going to react. So having the self-awareness provides an open perspective to observe these dimensions as they arise. And the self-awareness is connected to that part of our consciousness that we call the observer self. You remember that, you know, yes, and with practice, we become adept at tapping into the observer self to check out what's happening as it's happening. Okay. So because the observer self always takes a neutral stance, we have the space to choose how we want to respond by neutral stance. I mean, we're not being judgmental or, or critical. So if we get sucked into reactivity, this neutral ground provides a space to choose again. And this process allows us to maintain control over what we actually have control over or pivot if we find ourselves in reactivity or some negativity and, and are willing to opt for another way to deal in this situation. And yet it can be so mind-boggling when we find ourselves back in old behaviors, even though we know there's another option. Well, Anna, you know, you're once again pointing to the significance of practicing daily by stepping into the present moment awareness, using our breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, being with the breath, just we find it. By this simple refocusing of our attention on the breath, we're stepping off the train of our conditioned responses. We're activating that observer self, and in doing so, we're also rewiring the brain. New programming right there in the brain. You know, so if if we're not building the if we're not not building the skills by using the tools, it it becomes more and more difficult or even impossible 
to move out of emotional ruts and into alternative, healthier responses. So we're holding ourselves in awareness, recognizing our triggers, owning our reactivity, and choosing other options that align with the best version of ourselves. Yes. Yes. So let's now look at trust, the next ingredient. And let's look at trust as it relates to us and in our relationships. You know, it's so fundamental and it impacts all the other relationship dimensions. So again, starting at home, it's important to know that trust develops early, you know, beginning in in the first four years of our lives with our early caregivers in particular, you know, that it's always about, you know, did they hear us, see us, meet our needs? What were the surrounding circumstances that were might've been impacting them and in turn impacted us? So trust becomes this very personal, very subjective way of measuring if we're able to rely on others and count on them for being honest and forthright and dependable. So let's keep in mind that our level of trust may be related to either intentional or benign neglect from our early years, and that this causes trust issues. But you know what? It really doesn't end in our childhood. Later experiences of of abuse or manipulation or betrayal or abandonment can deepen this trust wound, you know, deepen the trust issues. So life experiences continue to reinforce how this early conditioning plays out over the course of our lives, you know, or not. And it's not just about whether we trust others. As you said, it starts at home with us. That's right. That's right. Self-trust is that steady reliance on knowing ourselves and our commitment to do what's right. You know, it's a way we honor ourselves from the best and highest part of ourselves. It's that that commitment to be kind and respectful to ourselves. It's not that we always do things right, but that we lead with that intention and, and learn from our mistakes and forgive ourselves, you know, and commit to learning and growing and leading with the best version of ourselves. You know, we don't allow that inner critic, that, um, that authority inside that wants to, to uh, criticize and judge us. We don't allow that part of us to demoralize us with shame and regret because that paralyzes us. Yes, and trust is such a central dimension. I'm curious as I turn toward myself and look at what's there for me. And that's exactly what's required, Anna. Turning toward ourselves, utilizing our self-awareness, noticing where we focus our attention, you know, noticing the worry and regrets of the past or the fears and angst of the future, you know, or, or notice how we might be volleying back and forth. You know, either way, we're missing the present moment. And without it, we really can't learn from our mistakes and we can't make the necessary changes and we can't move forward. Wow, that's so interesting that all paths rely on awareness. Now, I learned this truth so late in the game, Dr. Jane, (laughs) but I guess it's better late than never. Yeah. You know, well, let's talk about respect, which I'm sure we'll start with self respect, right? Yes. Yes, Anna. Self-respect is an essential building block of confidence and self-esteem. And because it's the acceptance of ourselves and our worth as a human being, it's it's honoring our wholeness, strengths, our limitations. You know, I, I very often speak of this as our warts and foibles, you know, mm-hmm. and with self-respect as our foundation, we're more likely likely to set 
realistic boundaries with others. You know, we're more likely to engage in in self-care. We're more likely to feel worthy of love and more likely to feel capable of loving someone. So we're more likely to balance our wants and needs with the wants and needs of others with self-respect. And we're more likely to voice our opinions and actually hear the opinions of others by actively listening. This all comes from respect and self-respect. And and where respect in relationships is mutual respect, it means that we and the other, whether that be a friend or family member or coworker, colleague, that we accept each other for who we are, even, even though we may be different from each other or, or have different uh, differing um, beliefs or opinions. And this provides safety within the relationship because everyone's well-being is being considered. So the key is that respect is a learned skill. You know, it, it's not necessarily innate. Mm-hmm. We have to learn it. And, and what this means is that that we're taught respect, we're, we're uh, someone modeled respect and self-respect, and then we eventually can make it our own. And I firmly believe that we continue to learn about respect and self-respect you know, over a lifetime, you know, by by practicing it, by by operating in mutual respect. And it's like, you know, it continues to grow within us and be more pronounced. This is so important. It can be so straightforward, can it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet without early lessons and a modeling of respect and self-respect, we're once again working through old barriers of faulty beliefs and old conditioning. Well, Anna, you're right. But but as you so aptly said just a moment ago, it's never too late. Never too late to discover another way to live, another way to be in the world. You know, I'll never say it's easy. You know, it, it's making different choices, sometimes difficult choices, but choices that create a new worldview that begins by honoring ourselves as well as others. And it has every possibility to change our lives significantly. Well, when you put it like that, (laughs) count me (laughs) in, Dr. Jane. You know, so let's move to compassion. Where did a, you know, we did a whole episode, excuse me, we did a whole episode on self-compassion a while back. Yes. Compassion literally means to suffer together. And it's a felt sense. We've talked about this before. A felt sense is neither cognitive or conceptual. It's activated when we're confronted with someone else's pain and suffering. You know, it's different than empathy in that empathy is feeling another's pain, yet compassion takes it a step further. We feel the pain of another, and we also feel compelled to take action to either relieve or reduce their suffering. So compassion may also be considered a practice, a practice that can be integrated into daily life to keep our our hearts open to all humankind. Dr. Jane, a, a practice? How how so? Well, gosh, Ann, I mean, you practice compassion all the time. You know, think about it. I mean, you do this, you do this consistently, you know, with your simple acts of kindness, speaking with kindness. You accept people for who they are, you encourage people and always are expressing your appreciation. You know, you you actively listen to others. You're not judgmental. You know, you you always there to offer a helping hand. And you also 
own and apologize when you think you've made an error or an indiscretion. So it's really, I mean, these are all the ingredients. Plus, you're also very willing to forgive others for their indiscretions. Well, that's very sweet of you, Dr. Jane, and thank you for that. And as you said before, it starts at home. So self-compassion is the starting point. Yes, yes. And self-compassion is a sense of, of warmth, warm-heartedness and understanding that we give ourselves when we're fouled up with something or, or we're down on ourselves, feeling like a loser or we're feeling inadequate or embarrassed. But rather than beating ourselves up with judgment and criticism, we allow ourselves to open our hearts. Now, keep in mind, it's not just justifying bad behavior and it's not self-pity. We're not playing a victim card here. We're admitting to our mistakes, admitting to our indiscretions, owning the messiness, and responsibly taking charge of the damage control because it's the right thing to do. And we're doing this in an open-hearted way. Yes, we're accepting where we are right now with all the messiness that goes with it, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. And as we both know, (laughs) life can be messy. However, without self-compassion, negative reactivity breeds more negativity, self-defeating thoughts, critical self-punishing kinds of behaviors, you know, and and this continues to trip us up, up and it also spills over into our relationships, whether we mean to or not. And we find ourselves mad and resentful of others and ourselves and the world in general. So compassion and self-compassion soften our hearts. And we learn that we can safely endure whatever arises and be with the experience in the moment. And as we practice this open-heartedness, you know, we can feel our connection to each other. And, and we find that we want all humankind to be free from pain and free from suffering. It's so interesting. You call it a, a felt sense. And it's not something we conjure up in our heads. When the heart opens, it's a whole body experience. I mean, I have felt this before. And when you're in the company of someone with an open heart, you can feel that too. It's it's so obvious to me when that happens, Dr. Yes. Yes. You're so right, Anna. You know, and there's actual science behind what you say. When we focus on any feelings of, of love, appreciation, gratitude, or compassion, we produce cardiac field that extends at least eight to 10 feet from the body and shifts the way we think and feel and perceive the world. You know, this is measurable with biomedical instrumentation, you know, and it can also affect others who encounter that field that we're producing. So let's move to our next and our last ingredient, which is the expression of the sum of the other four. Open honest communication. You know, Anna, I've often said in my work with couples and families, we can get through anything if we keep our hearts open and our communication open. You know, because it's through communication that we share our experiences and our needs, and it's the main vehicle of social connection. Oh, Dr. Jane, I notice that you include both openness and honesty in your description. Well, I do. You know, and I, I always add the honesty. I, I quite frankly, I I like to think that it goes without saying, but that that hasn't been my experience. You know, people often fudge when it comes to honest communication. You know, there's justification of 
lying. There's the so-called white lies or the lies of omission or half-truths or beating around the bush or titrating information under the guise of, I, I didn't think you could handle it. You know, and the list goes on and on. So open, honest communication occurs when all parties share information with transparency and respect, both expressing um, and, and actively listening to understand the other's point of view with empathy rather than interrupting or talking over the person. Well, let's talk about some pointers that can keep us on track. Well, it's always appropriate to align with self-awareness and check in with ourselves. You know, whenever we're going to engage in any kind of communication, the question is, is my heart open? And then there's also the question of timing. You know, the timing of, of when we communicate. You know, this can make or break the best intended conversation. If either we or the other person are in a low or angry mood or even have something like indigestion, we not be, <laughs> might not be able to be receptive to sharing information or receiving it. So mm-hmm. it's important to be flexible and patient. You know, however, I need to say, however, there's trouble if there's never a good time to talk and share. And this also needs to be addressed. You know, we've we've labeled this category as open, honest communication. And I think the final word on on honest is important here. Because yes, honesty is is an imperative in effective communication and in healthy relationships. Yet the truth about, without compassion, telling the truth without an open heart comes across as edgy, sometimes rude, or or even unfriendly. So speak from the heart and speak from the best version of ourselves to the best version of the other person is always the keynote in open, honest communication. Well, that makes sense total sense. And so healthy relationships are this incredible weave of self-awareness, trust, respect, compassion, and open and honest communication. And it all starts with us being personally responsible for each of those ingredients ourselves. I'd say the best version of ourselves is familiar with each of these and integrates them into our lives so that doing the next right thing is always the direction we're going. Wow, Anna, (laughs) that was a great summary. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Jane. It's it's all because of you. Seriously, you know, great pointers and insight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Until our next conversation.